if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, the beauty of the gospel is that God has saved us. He's freed us from the power and the penalty of sin. He's put us in Christ, who's now our life. So we gather together, surrender our lives, and say, our lives are yours, and we're your servants. It's not a radical version of Christianity. This is biblical Christianity. It's what it means to be a follower of Christ. We don't call the shots. He calls the shots. You're listening to the new Radical Together podcast with teaching from David Platt. And thanks for joining us for another episode of Radical Together. If you haven't had a chance to listen to the previous episodes, you can access the podcast archive through iTunes or by going online to Radical.net. Today, David's message is from Matthew chapter 2, entitled Missions and Matthew 2. If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, let me invite you to find Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. So when I was pastoring the church at Brook Hills, I had kind of a reputation uh, around the church for ruining Christmas carols. And it wasn't my intent to be a Grinch, but as we walked through the Word, I just thought it helpful to at least make some observations on some of the songs that we so commonly sing at this time of year. So take Silent Night, Holy Night, for example. So a great song, a peaceful song, a lovely song, but a rather misleading song. I think the mystery of Christmas is that Christ was born as a baby, God in the flesh. Now, a cooing, crying, bedwetting baby boy. And we got to be careful not to picture Jesus apart from true humanity. So I just don't think Silent Night, Holy Night is true. Holy, yes, but silent? No. What baby has ever come out of the womb silent and stayed silent? Now, understandably, Screaming Night, Holy Night doesn't quite have the same ring to it, but it's probably a little more accurate. With four young kids, I've spent spent plenty of hours in the middle of the night holding crying babies, walking back and forth, bouncing up and down, rocking here and there, trying to settle them down. So forgive me, I'm just not buying the idea that everybody slept peacefully that night. And for that matter, take take away in a manger. So the cattle are lowing, the poor baby wakes, but little Lord Jesus, no crying, he makes. I mean, do we really believe that? When was the last time you saw a newborn baby wake up next to a cow and not be a bit bothered by that? So I'll go ahead and give you a heads up that I'm going to reference a couple of other Christmas carols in the next few minutes. And if you don't want them ruined, you may want to try to fast forward through those parts. But in in all seriousness, I do want to show you that singing about this baby and giving worship to this king, these are appropriate responses to the story of Jesus' birth. And much like in the last episode, I want to show you in what the first half of Matthew 2 tells us about the global purpose of God in all history and the ultimate purpose of God for our lives. So what I want to do is I want to walk through these verses just one by one with you. And I want to pause along the way to think about all that's going on here. So in stories like this, particularly this time of year, they can, they can become over-familiar to us. But I want you to see the riches behind what Matthew is writing here. And I want us to see what this text means for our lives. So we'll go step by step, verse by verse of the passage, all leading to one ultimate conclusion. So let's start with Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. The Bible says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. 
Okay, let's stop there. Let's think about these wise men, the Magi. Uh, there's a bit of mystery around these guys. They weren't just wise men in general, but they were known to be astrologers, students of the stars with the ability to interpret dreams and signs. And so when you think, when you hear Magi, I don't think David Copperfield like magicians, but their name is the place from which we get our words magic and magician. So a couple of things we don't know about them. One is their number. Now, you, you may think you know how many wise men there were. We traditionally picture three of them, right? But then we need to ask, where is that in the Bible? We know they bring three gifts later in the passage, but nowhere are we told that there are three wise men. It could have been 10 or 30. We don't know how many. So we three kings of Orion are bearing gifts we traverse so far. Not necessarily true on two levels. One, we don't know for sure it was three. And two, nowhere does it say they were kings. So we don't know their number and we don't know their names. Tradition tells us that their names were Caspar and Balthazar and Melchior. Some say one was Ethiopian, one was Indian, one was Greek. The story goes that all of them were eventually baptized by Thomas, and then a bishop in the 12th century claimed that he found their skulls. So you can believe any of that that you want, but none of that is found in Scripture. So we don't know their number, we don't know their names, but what we do know about them are two things in particular. One, we know their setting. They were from the East. Now, obviously, that's pretty general, and there's a variety of specific possibilities that that could include. Some say Babylon, others say Persia, some say Egypt or the Arabian Desert. We don't know, but we do know they were from the east, and that's significant because it debunks yet one more carol, and so I promise this is the last one, then I'll stop ruining Christmas carols uh, for you, except for one more thing later. But you sing the first Noel, and it says these wise men looked up, and they saw a star shining in the east beyond them far. But the, the, what the text is telling us is they were from the east. They didn't see a star shining in the east. If so, the star would have led them eastward and they would have gone the wrong way and messed up the whole story. So they needed to go west in order to find Jesus. So the star was in the west. They were in the east. Key geographic uh, point there. So the next verse in Matthew says, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we star, his star when it rose. And if you look in your Bible you'll likely see a number that sends you to a note at the bottom of your Bible. And some translations have in the east, which is precisely what the text says. But when it says in the east, Matthew's not saying that the star was in the east. Matthew's saying that they were in the east when they saw the star. So the picture is when we were in the east, we saw a star, not we saw a star off toward the east. So maybe just to least stop saying that part of the first Noel. We don't want the wise men going the wrong way. So they were from the east, their setting, and we know their significance. So these wise men were high-ranking officials with power and influence. So when we picture these guys, whatever their names were, however many, many of them were, there were, we don't need to picture some isolated guys in a stargazing club. These men were well-respected with prominent religious and political influence. Their name literally means great or powerful ones. They almost certainly had a high position wherever they came from. And this is evident in the wealth they bring with them. It's likely that they probably didn't travel alone with a caravan, potentially even a caravan with soldiers and servants, which is part of why their presence in Jerusalem later in the passage is so obvious when they get there. So we learn about guys like this in the book of Daniel. It's likely that these men were influenced by Jewish teachings, teachings in the Old Testament when the people of Israel had been scattered across the east during the exile, which is another example, side note, of God sovereignly working in history centuries before to lead toward what we're reading right here in Matthew chapter 2. 
So clearly, through what they had heard in the Jewish teachings, now through their study of the stars, they were drawn by a star on a journey to worship the one born king of the Jews. So Matthew writes, verse 2, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw a star when it rose and have come to worship him. So we got the, the Magi, now the stars. And there's Old Testament background here to consider. If you go back, Maybe turn, if you're able to, in your Bible to Numbers chapter 22. Because back in Numbers chapter 22, you may remember the story of Balak and Balaam. Balak was king of Moab. And as the people of God journeyed through the book of Numbers, they were growing and expanding in power and might, and Balak was scared. So he called for Balaam, a magician, a seer, to curse the people of Israel. So Balaam is on his way to Balak in Numbers 22, riding his donkey. And you may remember what happened. It's one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament. Uh, Numbers 22, verse 22 says, God's anger was kindled because uh, Balaam went. And the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as his adversary. Now he was riding on the donkey and his two servants were with him. And the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand. And the donkey turned aside out of the road and went into the field. And Balaam struck the donkey to turn her into the road. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path between the vineyards with a wall on either side. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pushed against the wall and pressed Balaam's foot against the wall. So he struck her again. Then the angel of the Lord went ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn either to the right or to the left. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam. And Balaam's anger was kindled and he struck the donkey with his staff. Then the Lord opened This is the good part. Verse 28, the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey and she said, the donkey said to Balaam, what have I done to you that you've struck me these three times? And Balaam said and replied to the donkey, because you've made a fool of me. I wish I had a sword in my hand for then I would kill you. And the donkey said to Balaam, am I not your donkey on which you've ridden all your life long to this day? Is it my habit to treat you this way? And he said, no. And the story goes on and God makes it clear to Balaam that he is not to curse the Israelites. And he uses this donkey to do that. Now we find out in the next chapter, Numbers chapter 23, verse 7, that Balaam had been summoned from the eastern mountains to curse the house of Jacob and the people of Israel. Instead, however, in obedience to God, three times Balaam blessed Israel. And then, in what was his final oracle, Numbers 20, chapter 24, he says this. Numbers 24, verse 15. He took up his discourse and said, The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened, the oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty, falling down with his eyes uncovered. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star, listen to this, a star shall come out of Jacob. And a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and bring down all the sons of Sheth. So don't miss it. Here in the Old Testament, this is a promise that one will arise from this people. A star will come. A scepter, one who rules, will rise. This is the picture of a king announced with a star who, as you continue to read in that passage, will deliver the people of God from their enemies. So there in Numbers, you have a man from the east prophesying about a star and a king among the Jews. And this was widely regarded throughout the people of God as a messianic prophecy, a picture of the coming Messiah. So now when you get to Matthew, what do you have? You have Magi from the east following a star 
to the king of the Jews. This is no accident. A well-respected magician, seer from the east in numbers, telling of a star and a king to rise from among the Jews, now powerful, influential magi from the east in Matthew, following a star to see the one born king of the Jews. And this picture of a star of light to whom nations will respond. It's not just numbers. It's, it's Isaiah. You go over to Isaiah chapter 60. So this is getting the end, uh, close to the end of Isaiah. And Isaiah prophesies coming glory for God's people. And remember what Isaiah writes there? Isaiah chapter 60 verse 1 says, Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has ridden upon you. For behold, uh, risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth. Thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you. His glory will be seen upon you, and nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your son shall come from afar. Your daughter shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring, listen to this, gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. Do you hear this? Isaiah is saying the nations are going to come to the light of God's people. And they will come bringing riches and gifts for worship. So that's Isaiah. Now in Matthew, these men, these magi from the nations are being literally drawn to the light over God's Son. Is it not strange that in the Gospel of Matthew, a book aimed specifically at a Jewish audience, the first people we see to worship Jesus are magicians from the nations. This is clearly a picture of God drawing the nations to the Jewish Messiah. This promised Messiah is indeed not just king of the Jews, he's king of all peoples. Well, We'll come back to that. So they journey from the east to the west. Some estimate hundreds or up to a thousand or so miles headed in the direction of this star. Their natural stopping place was Jerusalem, the capital city of the Jewish people. For certainly that's where the child was. But as they start asking around about this one-born king of the Jews, no one knows who they're talking about, which sets the stage for an encounter with King Herod. When we see the opposition to Jesus in the book of Matthew officially begin, chapter 2, verse 3, Matthew writes, that when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. So here we have in King Herod a, a picture of a world leader totally intimidated by Jesus. little background on Herod. He'd been given control of Judea by the Romans in about 40 BC, and his label was king of the Jews. He was a victorious, successful, bloodthirsty tyrant. Whenever he suspected anybody who was plotting to overtake his rule, he'd have them killed, even to the point of murdering his wives and his sons at various times when he didn't trust them. So when he hears that influential officials with power and influence, have journeyed to Jerusalem to find a baby born king of the Jews. Matthew says that he's troubled. And that's really an understatement. The word there for troubled means greatly agitated, in turmoil, even terrified. So his insecurity clearly threatened by the announcement of one who would supposedly usurp his reign. And the text says all Jerusalem was troubled with him, likely because of the uncertainty of what that meant Herod might do which we find out later they had good reason to be uncertain what he might do. So Herod calls together the chief priests and the scribes, the religious leaders, verse 4, 
And the Bible says, assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Now, in this case, the religious leaders are virtually indifferent to Jesus. This is interesting. Matthew's going to reference these high priests and scribes more than anybody else in the New Testament in the pages to come. So we're going to see them again and again and again. And we're going to see them, as you read through Matthew, constantly in opposition to Jesus. Jesus. Now, the chief priests basically represented Jewish worship. At least that's what God had originally ordained the high priest to do. Unfortunately, this group had basically by this time become a group of corrupt, religiously oriented politicians. And then you had the scribes who represented Jewish law. Scribes were basically lawyers who knew and taught and interpreted Jewish law, both that which was in the Old Testament and the traditions that had been developed, which is frightening the way we see them opposed to Jesus throughout the book of Matthew. It is a clear reminder that mere knowledge of God's word is not enough. You can know it all. These guys knew it all well, and they missed the whole point. So that's just as an aside. That's, that's dangerous. It's a dangerous thing just to know the Word of God. It's possible to read His Word, to be familiar with it, and still miss knowing God and knowing Christ. So Herod inquires of these leaders about where the Messiah was supposed to be born. And they quote from the Old Testament, which we're about to read, to tell Herod that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, which is in fact where Jesus was. But they were virtually indifferent here, demonstrating an apathy that will soon, in the Gospel of Matthew, develop into outright opposition that will eventually lead to a desire to have Jesus killed. But you've got this opposition from Herod and then this response from these religious leaders. Um, and, and both of them, at some point, are going to want Jesus killed. In fact, the next time we see the King of the Jews label ascribed to Jesus in Matthew is when he's beaten and mocked as the King of the Jews before his crucifixion. So, the story continues. These, these leaders tell Herod about Micah chapter 5, verse 2. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it's written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For some, from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, this quotation from Micah is really interesting because Matthew basically paraphrases Micah chapter 5. But he adds a couple of things that are interpretive. In other words, he emphasizes some things from this prophecy in Micah 5 that help us understand the significance of what's happening in Matthew 2. So listen to Micah chapter 5, verse 2, which is widely regarded as a messianic prophecy. Micah chapter 5, verse 2 says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Now, when you look at both those verses right next to each other, you'll see a couple of differences. First, you'll notice that instead of saying Bethlehem Ephrathah like Micah, Matthew says Bethlehem and the land of Judah. So why do you think Matthew would write that? Bethlehem and the land of Judah. And then remember, going back to chapter 1, how intentional Matthew is to show that Jesus has come from the line of Judah. Matthew chapter 1 verse 2. The line of David. Matthew chapter 1 verse 6. And so here, by mentioning Judah, he's again referencing that kingly line. And he's reminding his readers here in chapter 2 that the place where King David was born is the place where King Jesus is born. Bethlehem was known as the place where King David was born and raised. As Matthew is constantly tying Jesus to King David here three times in chapter 2, verse 1, verse 5, and now in verse 6, Matthew's emphasizing how Jesus was born in Judea, in the land of Judah, thus emphasizing yet again Jesus' tie to the line, even the birthplace of King David. Only a member of the tribe of Judah could qualify for the throne of David. 
And then the second thing Matthew does is he says, Bethlehem, you are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, which is a little different than Micah chapter 5 verse 2. And it's because Matthew's emphasizing how Matthew chapter 2 is raising the significance of Bethlehem to a whole other level. Matthew's pointing out how this relatively insignificant village is an extremely important city. This small village, five or six miles south of Jerusalem, Matthew says, is by no means small. This is a hugely important city in redemptive history. And then, at the end, Matthew says that a ruler will come. A clear paraphrase from Micah chapter 5. And then he adds, who will shepherd my people Israel. And that's a reference to 2 Samuel chapter 5 verse 2, where we see God's promises to King David, and God says that he will shepherd his people. Again, a picture of King David in the Davidic line as a shepherding line that persisted throughout the Old Testament. So, granted, you had kings who failed over and over again in shepherding Israel, including King David, for that matter. But all of this was pointing to the fact that one day a good shepherd, the perfect shepherd, would come, and he would, as king, lead God's people back to him, which is precisely what we're hearing about Jesus from the very beginning of his birth, that the one who reigns as king will rule as shepherd. The, the point in all this, I just want you to see how every detail in this story is significant, how all the Bible ties together around the person of Christ. Different books by different human writers under the inspiration of one Holy Spirit are giving us a portrait of Jesus, the Son of God. Behold the beauty of God's Word. Love the wonder of God's Word. See the splendor of Christ from cover to cover in Scripture. David will return in just a moment, but I want to take a quick break and ask you to consider giving to the Lottie Moon Christmas Offering. This special offering, taken once a year, provides nearly 60% of the International Mission Board's annual income. And when you give to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering, 100% of your gift goes to supporting Southern Baptist missionaries all over the world. For more information, visit imb.org slash offering. And for other resources from David Platt, visit Radical.net. There you can watch or listen to past sermons, read the Radical blog, or stay up to date on catalytic events like Secret Church. Here's David with the rest of today's message. Then keep going. Verse 7. Matthew tells us, verse 7, Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And you can tell he's scheming here. Verse 8 says, Then he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you've found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. That, we find out later, is a bold-faced lie. King Herod has no intention of worshiping anyone else as king of the Jews. As will become clear further on in this chapter, King Herod wants Jesus dead, no matter what it takes. So you have this deception, Herod pretending kindness, and from all we can tell at this point, the wise men believed that this was Herod's true intention, when the reality was that though Herod pretended kindness, he intended murder. He was already scheming to have Jesus killed. And so as part of his plan, he sent them away, and they went. They made the five to six mile journey from Bethlehem to Jerusalem. Verse 9 says, After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. Now this is actually the first time that we ever see the star move. And it literally, supernaturally leads them to Bethlehem. You can't help at this point but to picture the pillar of cloud by day and fire by night in the Old Testament that led the people of God through the wilderness. But here, you've got a star leading them until it rests over this place where Jesus is. 
You can only imagine what this looks like. You don't, you don't normally picture, okay, now I'm underneath this specific star. But it was clear to these astrologers that they were in the right place under this star and they were giddy. Listen to Matthew chapter 2, verse 10. It says, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. I love that phrase. They, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. That's like quadruple joy. So this was the introduction to Jesus for the Magi. Now keep in mind, this was likely long after the night when Jesus was actually born and the shepherds came to worship him. Verse 11, which we're about to read, tells us that by this point, Joseph and Mary and Jesus had settled into a house. Based on verse 16, uh, we see that Herod killed all the male children in Bethlehem who were two years old or younger based on what had been told by the wise men. So Jesus was easily months, if not over a year old, by the time the wise men even arrived. So I hate to do this, but all those nativity sets that have wise men bowing down, well, it looks like they may be wrong too. I mean, the wise men came much later to this party. Those shepherds were long gone and months, maybe many months had passed before the wise men ever showed up. So you might go to the nativity house in uh, a nativity scene in your house and just take the wise men out of the scene. Uh, maybe put out your wise men sometime in the summer or something because it's, it's maybe a little more along the timeline that they were on. So they show up months later and they are Pumped, exceeding gladness, rejoicing, exceedingly with great joy. And listen to what they do. Verse 11, first part of the verse, it says, Going to the house, they saw the child with Mary's mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Wow, what a picture. These prominent men from the east, from the nations, bowing down, falling down, and they're worshipping a baby. You bow down when you're in the presence of one far superior to you. You say, I am low and you are high. And that's what these guys are saying. And then they offer extravagant gifts. Verse 11, then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. So it was customary, particularly in the ancient East, to bring gifts when approaching a superior. Now, some say these gifts don't represent any particular type of symbolism. They just collectively are a picture of extravagant, costly offering before this baby born king of the Jews. At the same time, when you look in history, even in scripture, you see pictures associated with these gifts. So what I'm about to say is not sure, even universally agreed upon by any means, but it's definitely possible that gold and the design of God was a picture of Jesus' royalty all throughout scripture. Whether these wise men realize it or not, gold is associated with royalty. Kings, queens, princes. When we see King Solomon's wealth described in 1 Kings 10, in the space of seven verses, gold is mentioned no less than ten times. Gold throughout the Old Testament is associated with royalty. And obviously, as we've seen, the main thrust of Matthew is to show Jesus' kingship. He's making it clear that Jesus deserves royal honor in chapter 1. Now in chapter 2, Jesus is receiving royal honor. And then you have frankincense that very well could likely be emphasizing Jesus' deity. Frankincense is used all throughout the Old Testament, not just in royal processions, but also in various offerings to God himself. It was stored in the chamber of the sanctuary in 1 Chronicles 9 and Nehemiah 13. And in the over a hundred times it's used in the Old Testament, it's usually referring to something dealing with the worship or service of God, burning coals, taken from the altar, burnt offering, placed on the altar of incense, smoke rising heavenward is a picture of prayer and thanksgiving. Incense was certainly associated in Scripture with the worship of God. And then myrrh very likely may be emphasizing Jesus' humanity here. Myrrh was basically a perfume with many different purposes. 
Whereas frankincense would be more associated with the worship of God, myrrh would be more associated with the anointing of man. It was used as a perfume with wine, as an anesthetic. It would also be used in preparing bodies for burial, which is pretty fascinating when you think about it, particularly in light of other appearances of myrrh in the Gospels. Obviously, here in Matthew, Jesus was presented myrrh as a king in a cradle. But then you get to Mark chapter 15, verse 23, and as Jesus was being hoisted on the cross, Mark says they offered him wine mixed with, guess what? Mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. So the king who on this day was presented myrrh in a cradle would one day be offered myrrh as a king on a cross. And then John 19, 39 and 40 tells us that Joseph of Arimathea used myrrh to prepare Jesus' body for burial in the tomb. So, indeed, in this gift given soon after Jesus' birth, we may be seeing a clear foretaste of the reality of Jesus' death, which is a reminder, regardless of the symbolism behind these specific gifts, this is a reminder, brothers and sisters, that Jesus came for one reason. He was born to die. He was born to take the payment and penalty for sin upon himself. This king in a cradle was headed to a cross. And he would be buried as he'd be put in a tomb, having died for the sins of men and women like you and me. So for anybody listening to even this podcast who is not a follower of Christ, let me encourage you to see in the story of Jesus' birth the significance of Jesus' death on your behalf. God so loved the world that he sent his son to live a life of perfect obedience, a life you and I cannot live, and then to die the death we deserve to die, and then to rise from the grave in victory over sin and death, so that whoever believes in him will never perish but have everlasting life. So believe in him today. Trust in him Today, as your Savior and your King, like these wise men, put aside all pretense and pride and bow and worship Christ as King. Matthew 2, what a powerful, in many senses, prophetic picture of joyful, reverent worship, which leads us to the conclusion. So what's the point? And why is all of this so important? And this is what I want you to see. This is what I pray will grip your heart and compel your life. This is how I pray this text might change everything about how you think about your life and your job and your family and the entire world around you. Here's the conclusion that just springs, clear conclusion that just springs from this story. The global purpose of God is the glad praise of Christ among the peoples of the world. This is the purpose of God. See it. God directs all nature toward this purpose. Talking about the star shining in the sky, John Piper said, God wields the universe to make his son known and worshipped. Yes, see it, the story here. God arranges the sky to announce his son. He exercises his authority as the sovereign over the universe to make it clear that the king has been born and he's worthy of worship. He uses the stars to shout his supremacy. God directs nature toward this purpose. He draws nations for this purpose. Matthew's aim is to show us that Jesus is born king of the Jews, but it's bigger than that. He's come right in line with the promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 to bless God's people for the sake of all people's peoples 
And this revelation is clear. Don't miss it. Don't be like the Jewish lawyers who had their noses in the Old Testament. They missed the point. See what these astrologers saw. These magicians from eastern Babylon or Egypt to the Arabian desert. See what the nations saw when God drew them to himself. God is directing nature and drawing nations to himself. How? How is he doing this? Well, first he sends the Christ. That's what we're reading here in Matthew. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. God has sent the Christ, the Messiah. The invitation, the beginning of Matthew is clear. Come and see this king. Magi, come and see this king. Joyfully offer your life as a worshiper of this king. And that invitation is for every single one of us. Come and see this king, Jesus See him, see Christ, and rejoice exceedingly with great joy. Be happy, people of God. Rejoice in this king. Worship this king. See this picture of powerful, influential rulers, giddy, bowing down in homage and humble worship, and realize this is our place. This is what we do. This is who we are. We give him extravagant offerings of our lives, everything we have and everything we are. We lay it all down before Jesus and we do it joyfully because he's the king. We see his royalty, his deity, his humanity, and we're compelled to shout and sing worthy as we lay down our lives before him with joy in surrender. So God is directing nature, drawing nations to himself by sending the Christ and then You just can't leave it there. Because then, as we continue reading through Matthew, we see that he sends the church. So there's so much that Matthew is setting up here at the start that he'll come back to later, especially at the end of the book. So, see it. Here at the beginning of Matthew, the message is clear to the nations. Come and see the king. And at the end of Matthew, the message there is clear. Go and spread this kingdom. What, is, what does Jesus conclude? Uh, what does he say at the conclusion of this book to his disciples, to all who've trusted him as king? He says, go and make disciples of all the nations. And this is what we do. We joyfully offer our lives to Christ as king, as worshipers of him, and then we passionately spend our lives as witnesses to him because the global purpose of God is the glad praise of Christ among the peoples of the world. Just think about it. Let this soak in. The God who 2,000 years ago sovereignly arranged the stars in the sky, the God who sovereignly directed these magi to the Messiah, is the same God who has sovereignly arranged your life and every detail in it. Your family, your job, your school, your background, your relationships, all of it. He's arranged it all for a purpose. For the same purpose. He wants to use your life to make the glad praise of Christ known among people everywhere. He wants to use your life to lead co-workers to joyfully worship Christ. To be glad in Christ. He wants to use you, student, on your campus to lead other students to be glad in Christ. Don't you see it? This is the purpose of the stars in the sky. And it's the same purpose of your life and my life, our lives, wherever we live. And then far away from where we live, among peoples who still don't know about this king, go and spread the kingdom. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Let's live for this purpose. Let's 
die for this purpose. Let's give our lives, our possessions, our plans, and our dreams for the cosmic global purpose of God. The glad praise of Christ among the peoples of the world. We're glad you joined us for another episode of Radical Together. For additional free resources, including those available in other languages, visit Radical.net slash resources. And again, for more information on the International Mission Board, go to imb.org. Join us next time for more teaching from David right here on the Radical Together podcast.